This is with the second pick, Steve Francis, the extraordinarily niche Vancouver Grizzlies basketball podcast. We're here to wrap the 95-96 NBA season. The Vancouver Grizzlies finished 15 and 67. I'm here with the grumpy house coat wearing soccer narc himself, Justin McElroy. How's it going, Justin? I miss my soccer cop days, Jeremy, even though it was in vain. The idea of shouting at young ones to get off my metaphorical lawn, something that I'll always treasure. <laughs> Almost as much as watching old Vancouver Grizzlies games, something that sounds fun in theory, and then you do it and you're just wondering why. Yeah, yeah. As we spoke about, it was like, it was a bit of a roller coaster that usually started quite low and depressing and wait, why am I spending my time watching these games? And then, you know, there was, there was narratives to buy into. There was country to watch. There was some high moments with uh, big wins. And what we thought we'd do is we have a, a big interview to wrap up the season with the initial, the first owner of the Vancouver Grizzlies, Arthur Griffiths. But first we're going to give out a couple of awards that we've come up with for the season are you ready to do that? I'm, you know, 15 wins. I'm not sure how many awards we can dole out on the basis of that. But I'm excited for one last look at this inaugural season that honestly had some fun times that were enjoyable to look back at. So let's do it. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with the first award that we've come up with here. And it's called the Dave Pratt Award for Worst Take. And so with me, this one's really easy. And this, you know, we're self-criticizing here. I mean, I could criticize your takes till the end of the night and keep going, but uh, I'll stick with my own on this one. But uh, I'm going with my Greg Anthony take from the first episode. I had criticisms of kind of like his herky-jerky jumper. He had made a bunch of turnovers that game that were driving me crazy. He was taking a lot of risks with the ball, all kind of like against my point guard purist ethos. But uh, in the end, Greg Anthony was a force on this team and one of the only reasons they stayed in a lot of games and watching him became one of the joys of, one of the only joys of those games. So I'm going with uh, Greg Anthony takes home my Dave Pratt award for worst take. And for worst take, we're also, it's important to talk about that we're remembering our takes from our childhood when we watched these games originally as well. And for me, the, the realization and the, my Dave Pratt Award goes to Chris King because I think just seven-year-old Justin treasured that buzzer beater for the win in the first home game just a little too much and thought that he was a productive NBA player. And then we watched five games from this first season, and he was invisible in most of them, despite starting all of them, despite getting 24 minutes each game. There was just so little to his game that was memorable, and a perfect example of season one Vancouver Grizzlies just dead minutes to a guy who would not play any significant time in the league after he left Vancouver. And, you, you know, some of the players, there weren't a whole lot of good players for the Grizzlies, but some of them were memorable in their mediocrity. I'm thinking, you know, to, uh, Eric Mobley. I'm thinking Lawrence Moden. I'm thinking Blue Edwards. All enjoyable in their own way. Chris <laughs> <Yes>. King... <laughs> 
I just couldn't find anything to get nearly as excited as I did that first time that he made that buzzer beater. On to the next award. The next one we're calling the Don Poye Award for remembering the Grizzlies correctly. And for this one, I was a bit torn, but I do have to go with the the narrative that we had when we were little and all growing up in the whole 25 years since that big country was very fat and very tired and very out of shape. I think, you know, that was correct. Um, I think <laughs> our, <laughs> I think our opinion definitely evolved through the season in that we're like, Oh, actually he brought a lot to the table later in the year. His numbers improved. He got in better shape, but man, that first stretch was really tough to watch and he was so out of place. And I mean, I'll never forget my eyes being so wide watching that very first game. We watched the T wolves game where he couldn't go up and down the court even once or twice without being hunched over. So I think the country narrative is more nuanced than we remember, but that particular part was very accurate, at least at the outset. It's funny. We haven't talked about what our choices are for this. I have written down big country sucked, got, but got better. And that was the same, <laughs> you know, and I think it is because the country aside from being the symbol of the team also has had the retrospective because of that fantastic documentary finding big country where the highlights of his success with the Grizzlies were played up and everyone loves a redemption story. And I think it was, in my mind at least, that it was like, oh, maybe I was too harsh on him as a kid in being disappointed and basically given false hopes and expectations, and then he immediately comes in as mediocre. And then, yeah, we watched the games. We saw just the lumberingness of him in the post. We saw just this exhausted look on his face all the time. It was not until we got to that one game from the second half of the season, not pretty. And so I didn't necessarily enjoy remembering why I originally wasn't the biggest big country fan as a kid, but it was nice to, and it was interesting to see, oh, it wasn't misplaced a lot of the original criticism of him. He truly did come out of the gate a real project. The third of uh, the four awards we've come up with here is the Stu Jackson Award for Biggest Disappointment. And I'll let you go first on this one. Yeah, and, and we talked a little bit about this a few episodes, but for me, it is the, uh, I can't, won't even say the one and only because that's giving too much credit, but it's Anthony <laughs> Avent, uh, who had the worst <laughs> statistical season of any player in the NBA that year by advanced stats and win shares. And here's a guy that the Grizzlies threw minutes after minutes. He started 32 games. He played 22 minutes a game. And he shot 38% from the field as a big man. I don't even know how you do that. And unfortunately, 1995-96 was the last NBA season where they don't have advanced stats on shooting. So we can see just truly how putrid he was from different places on the court. But it was just, again, some of the players we watched produced something that was entertaining. Avent wasn't good on offense, he wasn't good on defense, and just emblematic of the Grizzlies in so many ways of saying, why are you providing these opportunities to someone who at the time also was 26 and had played for other teams as well? He wasn't going anywhere, and yet we just got fed him in the post way too often. 
and how you put the ball on a tee for me to give out my award for biggest disappointment, my Stu Jackson award for biggest disappointment, goes to Stu Jackson, who Ooh, wins his namesake <laughs> award. Um, you know, he got rid of Benoit Benjamin. He got rid of Antonio Harvey. He got rid of Kenny Gaddison. He put players like Anthony Avent, who I did strongly consider, uh, in positions to be playing major minutes. He drafted poorly in the expansion draft. He gave Rich Manning meaningful minutes, uh, put him in a position to be given uh, meaningful minutes throughout the year. And, you know, he wouldn't let the YTV reporter into the draft room, which actually was probably Stu Jackson's high point of the season. I mean, what else is there to say other than what did Stu do now? Uh, he continued to disappoint and continued to give us great fodder for our segment. Every show that we've ever done, that, that, you know, when we've met to plan our episodes, a what did Stu do now segment was never hard to come up with. It was like, oh, Stu did X, Y, Z, and we were ready to go. So Stu gets his namesake award and I might just give it to him every year just because, you know, I want well, to. And, you know, we will hear more about the Stu Jackson hire when we talk to Arthur Griffiths coming up on the show. Uh, and before we get to that, the final award, the ultimate award of the inaugural Vancouver season, and it is the Big Country Award for Most Valuable Player. You don't have to pick Big Country, but we're naming the award after Bryant Reeves just, you know, because he's a big, lovable dude. I, I was going to say, just with your Stu Jackson pick going to Stu Jackson, bold to do it in season one. I thought you might hold out for two, three, or <laughs> but we haven't gotten it even to the Steve Francis pick or Otis Thorpe. There's still much more to go. But, I mean, we can give awards multiple seasons to people. This is one for me. I don't think uh, is going to go for a second season. But in season number one, the Big Country Award, Grizzlies MVP, it has to be Greg Anthony. And we talked about this on a number of games. When he was on the court, the Grizzlies could actually create offense. They were interesting to watch. They were fast. When he was not on the court, it was so obvious so much of the time. And this season for the Grizzlies, Greg Anthony did play quite well. His second season, not so much. But this one, you know, he scores 14 points a game. He gets seven assists. He shoots well from the field, uh, 33% from three. He's good on defense. He's And again, it's on offense where the team was putrid on offense. I think looking back at this too, most of the time on defense, they were average and could hold teams okay. They had that effort to them. But offense, just he was the only thing worth watching on a number of occasions. And it was nice to see, you know, we talk about how childhood memories actually being prove incorrect if it's like yeah he was the exciting guy that stirred the drink that first season and we saw that again and again so i knew you were going to pick greg anthony for the big country award for mm -hmm. mvp so i zagged where you zigged and i'm gonna go and this isn't really to argue with you because i i would you know with a gun to my head would say greg anthony but i'm gonna go with blue edwards mm. because this guy he grinded an entire 82 game <laughs> season he played every single game for this squad, uh, put up decent numbers. You know, he's 13 points a game, four rebounds, three assists, a steal and a half, nearly a block a game. He's playing tough D. He's logging 34 minutes a night. Nothing spectacular. You know, there was the broken the broken wing stork game winner we saw earlier in the season. Um, but just blue was there every night, every night grinding, playing hard, chucking from everywhere. Honestly, like, I, I really do think... The season would have been a lot worse for them if they didn't have Blue Edwards out there 
82 games. And I think he gave, you know, we've mentioned that spirit a bunch of times. And I think he was a huge part of that was a lot of professional pride is what I saw from him in playing for a losing team and coming out and playing at a fairly high level every night. So maybe that's kind of like the MVP two vote for this one, but uh, I'll give blue Edwards, my big country MVP award. Especially actually. And I just want to say for blue 82 games started all 82 games. And especially when you consider that he was a productive player for the jazz, which was a team going somewhere. And then you're on Vancouver. It's a no man's land to put in that effort. Yeah. It's worth props. Yeah, he could have quit any time and no one could have really blamed him, but he didn't and uh, we're better for it. So, Justin, good work on the inaugural season. Now we're going to throw it to our feature interview with the owner, the first owner of the Vancouver Grizzlies in that inaugural season, Arthur Griffiths. Thanks so much for being here, Arthur. Jeremy, thank you very much. Look forward to this. Okay, so take us back to the early 90s. That's most of what we do on this show. And tell us about the day or even maybe the moment when you realized that you wanted to bring an NBA team to Vancouver and that you might actually be able to make it happen. So first and foremost, the concept was of a basketball team was born out of the desire to find a second tenant for the arena. Uh, Canucks obviously were locked and loaded. And so we looked around. We looked around for other other opportunities. And one of my colleagues decided uh, to go and meet the owner of an, an arena football team in Phoenix, uh, who by coincidence owned a basketball team, namely the Phoenix Suns. And uh, in that journey of finding a prospective Senate a second team, uh, his name was Mike Horsey. Mike came back to after his visit and said, Arthur, uh, you know, Jerry Coangelo, the owner of the Phoenix Suns uh, and the face of the franchise and so on president, told me that they're looking to expand or, yeah, expand. And Toronto was on the list. And I said, well, what about us? Like, we can we can easily do anything better than Toronto. <laughs> and and, uh, and so he said, uh, well, I don't know. So I reached out to Jerry, who I didn't know, but uh, uh, we did have some cross friends because basketball and ownership have crossover ownerships and management for that matter. So he put in a good word and vice versa. And uh, next thing I know, we're having a conversation about two expansion teams instead of one, Vancouver and Toronto. And, um, you know, having the fortune of being fortunate position to have been in the position of approving, watching and experiencing franchises bidding for expansion teams, namely the National Hockey League, I got I got a I had a pretty good close up look as to what's involved, and in that process, I felt confident that the things that owners, uh, existing owners of franchises, look at when it comes to expansion are a market, ownership, arena, and potentially in some form or another added value to the global league. By that, I would obviously be market size. When we did our best ability to what's the expression uh value our position within an nba as to what we would bring to the table uh we had the arena confidently and you'd expect nothing more nothing less uh we had the uh ownership and uh and then the market and the market for us at the time uh admittedly was uh not a known nba market 
but we did have a diverse community, uh, the East Indian community, the Indian uh, community, and the uh, uh, the Asian community, of course. And then there's just uh, the size of our market. You know, at the time was just over a million, a million and a million two, million three. Now we're north of two. And when I compared it against what other was, what else was going on in, in the league, I thought we were. And it turned out we were we were in the middle of the pack relative to NBA franchises on some of those metrics, and um, and it just seemed to me that that moment in time uh, we were not only a, uh, a good choice, uh, you know, nothing against Toronto, but I thought we were a better choice than Toronto. And uh, and long story short, it was uh, it was full steam ahead. That early 90s era was a stressful time for you and your family's business. You, you were building GM Place, which was a financial stretch. There was some cost overruns. What, what was the vision you were chasing for an NBA team that made that risk-reward proposition work out for you, where you said, you know, this is worth it? So uh, let's, uh, let's reset. Um, in the early 90s, uh, the Canucks were more than viable. Uh, you know, we're contender and extremely good hockey team. Uh, in the uh, arena and the context of building the arena, what we did, of course, as many know, is it was a privately financed arena. So what we didn't know where it became stressful was what the economic situation would look like in North America for the next three to four years uh, after the franchise, or for that matter, after the arena opened. Uh, and I and, and those economic factors stem from uh, U.S. dollar, Canadian dollar, uh, payroll in particular, U.S. versus Canadian. What revenue was U.S. dollars versus what expenses were U.S. dollars and Canadian? So it, it was my view uh, well before this uh, that an NBA and an NHL franchise are no brainers. Uh, you know, we put those two together in any city virtually in the world, much less Canada. It, 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 it makes sense. Um, unfortunately, along the way, of course, besides the exchange rate, we, we faced um, three, three work stoppages, one in basketball and two in hockey over the next three years. So that's where the perception lies that we, we, we were uh, the risk reward, if you will. But no problem hockey in the arena. You add basketball. And frankly, the basketball team is, a, is just, as a, just as a fact. Loss less money than the hockey team did and again it, in most parts it was either a work stoppage or a exchange rate factor so that's where the house of cards uh, came down but it wasn't it was not that it didn't wasn't viable uh, and i and i'm really upset because i know that over the course of history people look at it and say basketball didn't succeed no uh, the owner after i sold uh, and his then partner or at least his then uh, who he sold the franchise to had no intention of getting the Grizzlies here. It wasn't the view of the market. It was a desire to move it south, and they did it. I understand, and you know, it's I, I, I get a pack, I get a chance to remember what it was like up front, and then I get the chance to see and say, look, the, the, the facts were this: they were exchange and they were work stoppages. And so, what a work stoppage means is that your business cannot collect or spend money, namely tickets, or even sponsors' dollars, because you have nothing to sell. So you're in a hiatus. So all of a sudden, season doesn't start. January rolls around. Are we going to have a season? Is there any hockey? Is there any basketball? So there was that up and down and that challenge. And so it was a really, really 
uh, a unique but it, it extraordinarily difficult and uncharted territory. We didn't know when we were going to play, when we were going to open our doors, and you don't know whether you're going to have a concert, never mind playoffs. We, again, remember, we had a good hockey team. And, of course, the NBA gave us a pretty difficult uh, expansion agreement that was, I don't know if you could say one hand, for sure one, maybe two hands tied behind our back. Well, tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, how how difficult do you think that made it for success to happen in those early years, Those that late expansion pick, the limits on your spending? I mean, you must have known that was the deal going in, but how, how difficult did that make it? Didn't know. No. Well, when we bid for the franchise uh, and when we received uh, the approval, the, the fine print, in the expansion agreement shows up the draft picks the, the, the so now they're you've said yes mm. you've told the world yes and now they're telling you well oh by the way you can't do this you can't do that you can't have this you can't do that i'm like what are you going to do i don't know how to put it maybe it's a stupid thing to do but we just bite the bullet and go forward and do our best um and and i think the difficulty is as we all know in basketball is that one player one player uh, can change your franchise's fortunes, no matter where you play. Um, and unfortunately, when I think about the first players that were available in those three or four years, where we could have drafted potentially because of our falling short, when we should have had the best player, that would have made the difference. That would have made a huge difference. But was there any time where you got on the phone with Colangelo in 94, 95, and, or someone and said, wait a second, what's this about the sixth overall pick? And, 50% salary cap. Is there anything we can do with that? Uh, or was it just so firm that these are the uh, rules and it was clear you couldn't do anything? The problem we had was that we were not negotiating uh, with the league. And the league was really negotiating, in essence, with Toronto. So Toronto agreed to everything. And we were just like, okay, what are we going to say? No, or uh, we agree. And we chose to agree. And as I said, we, we hoped and, and uh, you know, the Raptors have subsequently proven it over time. It's just not, it's just unfortunate because this uh, expansion agreement was a response to the Charlotte Hornets who had won because they had received, I think, two, if not three of the top picks over a period of four years. And suddenly from expansion, they're winning. And uh, this was a, um, I call it a response to the, the loaners at the time. So we weren't in a negotiating position, to be honest with you. So let's talk about some of those player acquisitions. So on July 22nd of 94, a seminal moment in the history of the Grizzlies, uh, Stu Jackson hired as general manager, a guy with a couple years coaching experience in the NBA, a couple years in the NCAA. So how does a guy mostly with coaching experience end up with the top personnel basketball ops job on an NBA team? So I, I, I went to meet, uh, as you would expect at the time, uh, David Sturm, uh, a number of uh, meetings on different things when there's building a team. Uh, I respected David on many, many levels. And I said, David, look, uh, you know, for a franchise, where we are, what we're doing and how we're trying to build it. And I said, I'd like to talk to you about uh, Mr. Thorpe, who was the director of basketball operations for the NBA. And uh, he said, well, that's not going to happen. Okay. Okay. Fine. Um, and, um, and I said, you got any other names? I, you know, I'm trying to create a list and I had other names and he said, uh, 
And I and then I said, what about Stu Jackson? Because I think he at the time was uh, working with the, the, Mr. Thorpe at the uh, basketball operations. Uh, maybe he had just finished coaching the Knicks. And he goes, uh, and I go, what about, he goes, oh, he's a great basketball guy. He's got a great pedigree between, you know, Oregon and a whole bit. Uh, young, up and coming, very, very articulate. Yeah, it was just a reference, uh, references to uh, his capabilities. And I checked around with a lot of people that I knew in, in, in terms of uh, sports, um, including the NHL and other owners of crossover franchises. And I also uh, met with them and, and other people we, we interviewed and uh, Stu was, uh, you know, again, uh, you're asking someone to come in and coach or manage a franchise that's got two hands tied behind its back, build a franchise. And uh, what I wanted to do is have someone that could have a value system that we, we could embrace, uh, had an intimate knowledge of the operations of an NBA team, and more importantly, even the league, uh, as we were going through this growing phase. But you know, you're asking someone. And look, Toronto did the same thing, and they didn't. They didn't uh, bust out of the gate either. Uh, so anyhow, he was uh, built a good uh, uh, operation on and off the court. One of the games we did the podcast for was, of course, the first home game, the Chris King uh, game-winning overtime, tipping in the home opener against the Timberwolves. You have a pretty big grin on your face and some footage of that game after the bucket goes in. What was that moment like? That had to be the highlight of the entire experience. Oh, well, it being early on, yes. Uh, it was a hell of a, a, a game. Uh, I remember meeting the owner of the... Uh, uh, Minnesota, right? The Timberwolves. I remember meeting him beforehand. He came in for the game, and I believe David Stern was here. And uh, we had a pre-game reception up in one of the lounges. And I said to uh, the owner, "I said, well, you know, we're about to make it two in a row." He looked at me like, Whoa. and <laughs> anyhow, it couldn't get more dramatic. And you know, I remember what I remember most of all was obviously a full arena, but the uh, and 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 the uh, crowd. They just went ballistic. They thought they'd never seen anything like it, and, and in, in a sense, they hadn't. So uh, it was it was exhilarating. It was a, a moment of, um, you know, let's be honest with you. When you do something like this, it's a culmination of effort and uh, seeing something come to fruition. Yeah, I remember it well. It was a great night, and I have uh, I have a basketball from that night uh, in my office here at home, and I have. Uh, Lots of other little treasures. Nice. We can definitely tell you that uh, David Stern was there because he did quite an interesting interview with John McKeechee during the uh, broadcast, which was entertaining for the podcast. But uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the big guy, about big country. What is your recollection of how the basketball ops team presented him as kind of like, this is who we're picking. This is what we want to start and build the franchise around, you know, heading into that draft. So I, I wasn't there physically at the draft uh, in, in terms of the draft, uh, I would call it the draft table. Uh, so, and I had been in other sports, but not, not, a, not the basketball. I was there for the draft. It was in Toronto. And um, I remember uh, the footage and I'd actually, of course, just previously seen the, the final four and I'd seen his performance in Seattle. And I was like, holy smokes, this guy's a monster. This guy is like, you know, uh, what you would build a franchise around. And uh, so I was thrilled. Uh, I remember talking to him after the draft in a kind of a media room in behind. And uh, 
just couldn't be a nicer person. I mean, he was just a really wonderful human being. And, uh, and, and, and you build from point, you build from centers and one or the other usually. And he fit, he fit the mold from a, you know, uh, <laughs> you just kind of move him out of the paint. I love some of the interviews I've seen subsequently with someone like Shaq going, I couldn't get away. I couldn't get a, away from him. I couldn't get around him. He, he couldn't stop him. Like, and that's true. That's very true. He's a wonderful uh, person, but more importantly, uh, was a hell of a basketball player. In that first season, you know, you start with those two wins and the euphoria, and then it becomes loss after loss for a lot of it. A lot of the expansion picks that were chosen by the team were quickly traded or released. Did you have frustration on your end as this was going on and wondering why are we cutting these costs or was it just part of you knew this is going to be a difficult first season? Well, I'd seen expansion teams in other sports, uh have pretty tough starts. So I wasn't too, too disappointed. Uh, I'm a competitive guy, but I, I accepted it as part of the growing pains, if you will. Uh, you know, you're dealt not all the cards when you to be, as we discussed the expansion agreement. So we weren't like uh, as much as in, in, on reflection, especially you're like, Oh, well, you, how, how is it possible? We're, we're not, for example, nowadays you look at Vegas and they were becoming a full partner from day one in hockey that's not the case in basketball. So we were, our hands were, were tied uh, behind our back. Uh, so I accepted along the way that this was going to be a, a grind. Um, but most importantly, what I was trying to make sure is that we were conveying that we were in the community, we were entertaining and we didn't give up. And, uh, you know, you, you look at that year and frankly, a number of the years and you go, basketball is basketball. So uh, it, it's not uncommon to say that you're in it until the last 60 seconds. That's what David Stern used to tell me. He says, Arthur, I sell basketball, NBA. We sell the last 60 seconds. We want you in your seat. We want you in the building. We want you to never not be certain of the outcome uh, until the last, maybe the last buzzer. And, and uh, I think that's one of the uniquenesses about the sport. Uh, and then, so our fans were here. They were, when they were there, they were there. They, and uh, in, especially in the early three or four years, it was a great, great entertainment ticket. And I know people, I, I get it all the time. I tell people all the time that I get asked more about basketball and particularly the Grizzlies, whether the team will come back or whatever than any other sport or any other thing in my life right now. That's the number one thing people ask me about. That's interesting. And we certainly, from the games we've watched, did, you know, there's a fighting spirit to that squad. They grinded out, they grinded out those games and whether they won or lost, they usually had, you know, a passing interest at a win there. So that was always fun to see. Um, I did want to ask one more thing about the draft. I know you weren't at the draft table, but in the draft broadcast, they cut to Dick Versace. Yes, that Dick Versace. And um, he says, hey, I just heard that Dallas offered 12 and 24 and a first next year to pick big country, which that was unbeknownst to me until I rewatched the draft, which is like a crazy deal. I'm curious if that ever came across your desk or your phone or whatever it was at that time. <laughs> no, and, and, and I don't know if uh, you would have been able to make that happen because we weren't permitted to get the first pick under any circumstances. That was that would have been an issue that the league would have taken up internally. If someone offers the first pick, even though it was via trade, I'm not sure he would have got it because of the same thing would have applied. It would have come out to be, um, it would it would have been, a, I think, a fifth or a sixth the okay, next year. Okay, well, possibly it would have uh, passed the mustard. But in any event, I uh, no, I wouldn't have 
Uh, I wouldn't have seen that, and I don't know. But, you know, to be honest with you, look, uh, look back at big country's first four years in the league. Uh, uh, he was a force. Uh, his uh, health issues, uh, which I'm happy to talk about, but his health issues, which were genetic, uh, became his Achilles heel. I mean, people talk about his weight. Uh, to, be, to be completely fair, as a basketball player, as he got older, you know, starting playing instead of 40, 40, 50 games he's playing in, in an 80-game season, uh, his body was taking a pounding. Uh, and at, at his size and weight and the genetics, uh, every time he basically was running, it was like someone was sticking an electric shock up his spine. His um, vertebrae in his spine were uh, out of alignment, and he had some degenerative uh, issue. Uh, it was a, it was really sad to see because he was maligned for apparently not trying when in fact it was hard for him to jump, to run. And then, and then because of the pain, the acute pain really that came with all of that, the challenge was, which was even more complicated was that, well, how do you exercise? So suddenly you're eating and exercising and both of which are, unless they're in check are complicated for his physical um, and output, which is a, a physique. So, but I, you know, I don't know. There were games that uh, I don't know where we would have been if we didn't have him because of his uh, shooting and his guard and his position and his defense. I mean, he's a, he's a, and a great person, just a great person. Yeah, that comes across in all of the interviews he did. Uh, part of the reason we want to talk, talk to you f for the wrap-up of our first season of this is because you were intimately involved with the first season, and then, of course, less. By November of 96, you had sold your remaining shares in the company to John McCaw. 25 years later, when you look at that whole world whirlwind experience of bringing the team to that Vancouver and that first season, how do you look back at it? Do you have any regrets? Um, uh, the regret that I didn't have control over is that the team is no longer here for sure. That's a regret, but it's not something I had a, any control over at the time, as you point out, but uh, bringing it here, showing Vancouver off, more importantly, showing off, you know, showing the game to Vancouverites, no regrets at all. Uh, I just wish that it was still here. That's all. And, you know, who maybe, you know, uh, in the future, whether or not that'll, I think it's, uh, I was saying to someone the other day that uh, if you were asking me today which franchise would be more successful in this market, Canucks or an NBA franchise, basketball, no question. Hard, solid, no doubt, none. I, uh, you would not be able to get a ticket for a very long time to see a basketball game if there was an NBA team here. Well, Arthur, we really appreciate your time and for coming on the podcast with us. It's been great looking back at that first season and enjoying some of that excitement that we saw. And uh, it's great to get some inside insight into what we looked back on. So thanks for joining us. Anytime and uh, enjoy and uh, keep the faith. And I'll, <laughs> I'll try to find a way that uh, have some, some small part of bringing it back. Oh, let's do it. <laughs> one can I'm hope, in. one can dream. <laughs> yeah, well, that's where it starts. Yeah. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Cheers. The first owner of the Vancouver Grizzlies, Arthur Griffiths, 
still seems a little bit salty about those expansion rules put on his team <laughs> more than 25 years ago. Jeremy, it was interesting to see his passion for the team still, but the thing that uh, I took away the most was simply that he feels, not unfairly, that the Grizzlies got a raw deal from day one that sort of tied one hand behind their back for their entire tenure. Well, yeah, that was interesting because in my question, I assumed he knew about those rules heading into having the expansion deal. And he's like, he's shaking his head as I'm asking that question. And I'm going, wait a minute, you didn't know about this. And he calls it the fine print. And I'm like, <laughs> like if that's what you're finding out about at the last second is that you won't be able to draft high and you won't be able to spend as much as other teams. Like imagine getting that news after like, I mean, the pressure that's on this guy and his family and building the arena and like, Hey, we got to make this work. And it's like, by the way, you can't have any surefire, like top notch draft picks for like the first number of years. That must've been a real kick in the, in the gut, you know? Yeah. And it's, it makes it so difficult. And it's still a situation where, yeah, you can fully understand NBA owners saying, no, we're not having this happen again. And, the Raptors, at the end of the day, yeah, Isaiah Thomas knew how to draft. He was able to get Stoudemire as a real player. He picked right with McGrady. These things did matter of getting a competitive team early for the Raptors. But it's always going to be, you know, we talk about what-ifs on this podcast. And one of the biggest what-ifs is simply, what if the Grizzlies were allowed to ever pick first? What if they were able to stock up in that first couple seasons with more better veterans that would have had maybe a 25-30 win season early that maybe have gotten some enthusiasm on the team. You still have Stu Jackson as general manager, so we can't go down that line too far. But yeah, it's you could you could feel his annoyance still on that, and it's fair comment by Arthur. A couple other things that jumped out at me. One was that our beloved Vancouver Grizzlies really could have been an arena football team mm -hmm. because he, <laughs> he had sent one of his one of his colleagues down to Phoenix to learn about arena football because they needed another tenant for yep. GM Place. And it's like, well, by the way, there's actually maybe going to be an NBA team available. And it's like, that's hilarious. Like we could have had like the Vancouver Banshees of the, like they could have been like along with the Vancouver Voodoo, long lost in history, although I guess the Grizzlies are too, but we talk about them all the time. And then, you know, there, I was. I wanted to ask him about Stu Jackson, and I wanted to put it as fairly as possible and say, you know, here's a guy who coached the Knicks for two years and coached the University of Wisconsin for two years. How is he the GM of an expansion NBA basketball team? And, you know, he kind of blew past it and said he wanted Rod Thorne. He said Thorpe, but um, we're pretty sure he means Rod Thorne, who we know from the Last Dance documentary, was with the Bulls, um, was on the selection committee for the Dream Team in 92. I mean... I got to say, I, I think Rod Thorne would have been a hell of a GM to get for the Vancouver Grizzlies, especially considering what we had. But he kind of jumps from vaunted veteran exec to, well, then we were just taking Stu Jackson. And it's like, there's got to be like something in the middle of that sandwich. You know what I mean? Arthur clearly has so much passion for basketball, but in terms of talking about those decisions that were being made there, he was happy to go 
along with whatever made sense, right? Um, it's not like he's trying to retroactively talk about history that I tried to do this thing and I failed because of this. He's like, no, we got a team because I needed a 10 and 10 it just sort of came up as why not? And then I was told Stu Jackson would be good. So I went, okay. And, uh, <laughs> you know, even when he talks about big country, he's like, well, you know, we thought we needed a center and he was pretty good. And you could argue, well, maybe if there was an owner with more killer instinct there pushing the direction for the team, it might have gone differently. But it shows just the fluky accident that was the Vancouver Grizzlies is backed up by the first owner's recollection of it. Totally. And I mean, it does seem like the paradigm, too, was unfortunately we were kind of riding Toronto's coattails on this, right? It was like, well, Toronto was fine with the expansion rules, so we had to be fine with it. But, you know, Toronto might be getting a team. Why don't we get a team? Like, it didn't seem like he was in the driver's seat on this really whatsoever. So that kind of came across, hey, we're just going to go for it. We're rolling the dice here, which is like awesome. Like, I love that kind of that feeling that he had as far as the just like, we're going for it, man. And then the big country thing, you said he kind of like shrugged his shoulders with that. I I felt like he just like loves big country. Yeah. He just loved him. He was like, I saw him in Seattle. It was great. Um, he says he was a force was a quote. He also made a, a quote quotation that I'm not, I mean, I'll have to double check, but he quoted Shaq as saying, I couldn't stop him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, like, yeah, I have questions. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. It may have happened mm -hmm. over like a couple of a uh, couple of drinks in the suite yeah. when Shaq was sitting out a game or something like that. Anyway, I I, I raised my eyebrow at that quote. Mm -hmm. I will say, but you know, in the end, like he's obviously super passionate about it. Still believes in it. Regrets that it's not here. I mean, we all regret that. But um, you know, it's, it's so funny. I'm such a sucker. Like I know we're not getting a team, but at the end, when he goes like, keep the faith. I'm going to try and play a role. Like my heart just picks up a couple beats a minute and I'm just like, yeah, do it. Like, come on, man. And you know, it's not going to happen, but I, you know. I mean, when, when Arthur Griffiths talked about bringing the winter Olympics to Vancouver, there were a lot of people that probably went, well, it's not going to happen when Arthur Griffiths. And, you know, we didn't talk about this, but when Arthur Griffiths said, I'm going to build an arena in downtown Vancouver and I'm not going to ask for any money from the government. It's just going to be from me and me alone. People probably thought, well, you're crazy on that too. But he did that. And I think, uh, you know, there's a huge what if about what if the Griffiths family was able to keep their media empire and their sports empire for years longer th than they did and the role that going for the Grizzlies played for the sports empire. But I think at the end of the day, you look at what Arthur Griffiths was able to bring to this city and something that we can still enjoy to this day in the arena, if not necessarily the basketball team, of something that we should always as a city have some gratitude for. Thanks so much to Arthur Griffiths for taking the time to chat with us on the podcast. And with that... This has been, with the second pick, Steve Francis. That wraps season one for good. It's in the rearview mirror, Justin. For Justin McElroy, I'm Jeremy Allingham. Stay tuned for season two. You see, you did it.